Hey everybody, thanks so much for your patience. It will be rewarded in the next couple of weeks. We have some really good episodes coming out. Uh, I wanted to push one of those particular good episodes up, though, uh, that we just recorded just because it happens to be quite timely, and it's for a good cause. Uh, Rob Kuttner, who writes for Conan, who uh, used to write for The Daily Show, he just released an album online called It's Okay to Do Stuff, and it's a an homage to Free to Be You and Me. It's great. Um, and also, uh, when you buy it, the proceeds go to charity. So really, it's it's very win-win. Uh, it's it's more than worth it. It's hilarious. It's got so many great, uh, talented voices on it too, including comedy on vinyl regular James Urbaniak. Definitely worth listening to. It's hilarious. And we sat down. Uh, I sat down with Rob, and we talked about this his his album. We talked quite a bit about Free to Be You and Me and just his comedy influences in general, and kind of his progression through the world of comedy. Uh, It's great. It's wonderful to listen to, and uh, I think you'll enjoy it. So definitely get his album and uh, put a little money in the pockets of a worthy charity. Uh, And if you would, please watch my movie. Uh, it's online on YouTube for free. It's, it's a feature length film called looking forward. I've been working on it for eight years, just finished it at the beginning of November. So yeah, it would be nice to get a few more views on that. Uh, just go to youtube.com slash J K L A M M, or just go to the website, which is J K 2016.com and watch the movie rate it. Uh, that is to say, like it add some nice comments, that'd be cool. Um, yeah, and spread it around. Uh, it's our feature, first feature film, my directorial debut, and um, yeah, I'd like to get a few more people checking it out. Um, thank you guys so much for listening, and enjoy this episode. All right, everybody, uh, welcome to Comedy on Vinyl. This week I have Rob Kuttner with me. Hello. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Oh, thanks. Um, what was awesome is like a couple weeks ago I was reading, I don't probably Huffington Post, I think, uh, Probably where I f- yeah, 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 where I first read about you doing It's Okay to Do Stuff, which is great. And uh, But we had literally two weeks before with Kevin Allison done uh, uh, Free to Be You and Me. So I thought oh, it was right. perfect because I'd finally actually heard that album. Well, our whole plan was just to sort of like synchronize up the comedy on vinyl schedule. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. Just yeah. to dovetail with whatever you were Yeah, doing. I appreciate that. It was very yeah. nice of you. <laughs> Um, so I, I'm assuming then that you listened to that as a kid or at least heard it as a kid. Uh, I think obsessed would be a better. Really? Really? So maybe even it's because Kevin Allison talked about it like ad nauseum because you just absolutely adored that thing. Well, you know, it's like I had, I had a period when, you know, my parents had, you know, the, the, what do, you, what do they call it now? A forty-five? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I forget what the terms. Of, you know, a record, a record. Sure. And and I, I must have worn out the thing, and um, it was just so different from anything that kids listen to. And most things for kids are just like, you know, either storybook, sure, or you know, quote unquote, kids music. Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah. Or just adult music, which is fine too. And this is just something that's like, you know, adult level production values and intelligence and sophistication and comedy, right? Entertainment value. But aimed at kids and with like all these kind of like, I wouldn't say counterintuitive, but like definitely like a strong sense of values that they're sure. trying to impart. You know, even though as a kid you don't you don't know what that is or what what they're fighting against. Mm-hmm. Um, there's definitely like a whole world that makes sense, a whole philosophy that's behind it, and like yeah. you kind of feel all that as a kid. And it's just, but it's just so entertaining that you just listen to it all over and over again. And I didn't really listen to it beyond then, but I have a four year old daughter now, yeah. and so we've been playing it for her and stuff. And like you know, it just like taps into all these. Sense memories, I think. I bet. I just remember all these things. That's amazing. Um, what then made you want to do kind of an homage, almost parody, then of, of it? 
Well, I think I think part of it was just that um, I just saw the notice about the 40th anniversary, and it just you know struck me as a uh, first of all, a I'm old, <laughs> and um, and b um, as I was saying, like it has it has such a, a world all of its own that that kind of thing is usually the best raw material I think for you know for comedy in a way, and not yeah. necessarily like you know I, we did think of it as a parody originally, but in a way it's it is sort of a tribute in the sense that we kind of just like latch onto it as opposed to a parody yeah. is something where you kind of like. I think you go in and try to turn something on its head, sure. or, or even even satire. You're sort of trying to you know take it down, and I don't think that was the goal here. This is right. sort of like trying to like jump into that mindset and just do something that was way more twisted than they would kind of done, <laughs> have done in their sort of earnest worldview. Yeah, yeah. Is uh, did you now is it is it entirely written exclusively by you, or did you co-write? No, it was actually co-written by me and um, Joel Moss Levinson, who's this great singer songwriter. Um, and he, I mean, like he composed all the music and performs in some of it as well, um, and orchestrated it. And then also his brother, Stephen Levinson, mm-hmm. um, is also a writer and a director. And, and they, those two have been collaborator, collaborators of mine on a lot of stuff, uh, all kinds of stuff in the past, viral videos and sketch shows. And, mm-hmm. um, and Joel's is, Joel's is kind of wonderkin with music, like, I've had like crazy ideas in the past, and I've said, "What about doing so and so?" And he'll just like turn around an amazingly catchy tune That's awesome. in like a day or two, and, and like you know, um, so and, you know, if he likes it, he'll do it. So, yeah. I, so I said, "What do you think about we should do something that I, at that time I said a parody of Free to Be You and Me, but with like completely wrong songs that couldn't make it into the album?" Mm-hmm. He's like, "I love it. Let's do it." <laughs> and so. And so we just like jammed stuff back and forth until it made both of us laugh. And then we brought Steven in because he's kind of like he's kind of like the closer. Like Steven like makes things actually happen uh-huh. and gets us on schedule and then like fixes them so that they actually work comedically and all that. So, right. you know, so it was just like a this big kind of team effort. But it was also kind of like an intense like three week process, I would say, really. It was just I very was like yeah. ener- love driven, energy driven. That's so cool. So, it, it, what was the full turnaround from the idea to actually having the thing? Well, I could. Produced? I have to go back through the the paper trail, I guess. Yeah. But um, it really was like it was coming up probably the third week of November or something like that, and um, and I just saw it and emailed it to him, and then like within a day or two, we were already like coming up with ideas for songs, and then mm-hmm. I mean, I didn't I didn't really keep track, but it really sure. was. It was. I would say it was just under a month, and so That's crazy. That's insane. Yeah. As a kid, did you listen to a lot of comedy, or was it? Are you more of a TV guy? I, I didn't listen to so much as a kid. I wasn't like so hip to it. I think um, I would say more like in my teenage years. Yeah. You know, as I was introduced to like, you know, George Carlin's oeuvre and sure. the whole Monty Python thing, and mm-hmm. um, you know, Kids in the Hall. I, w- I was this kid who. Um, as a child, when I was in you know kindergarten, first grade, and second grade, I thought everything was hilarious. It was like the Matrix, where I could see the humor in everything that mm-hmm. no one else did, um, and so I was always laughing at stuff that no one else was. And so I got thrown out in the hall a lot by the teachers. And so I was assumed the kids in the hall were just like that too, like these unable to function in polite society people. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if you know this. It turns out I, I found out later on it was actually a term for um, the kids who would sell jokes to like vaudeville. Really? And like like old school, like, you know, Bob Hope comedy acts. They would stand out in the That's hall with the jokes. Funny. The I hall. had never heard yeah, that. Yeah, which is totally cool as well. But, That's amazing. You know, so, so Kids All Monty Python, George Carlin, uh, Dennis Miller's Off White album, like, those were things that I would just, like, commit to memory and just, like, yeah. recite with my friends. When normal children, <laughs> when cool children <laughs> were, like, you know, singing rap lyrics or, you know, whatever to each other. Or, or perhaps, perhaps speaking to girls. Um, <laughs> uh, that's what that's what I was doing. Was sort of imbibing all that stuff. Yeah, 
did you make friends over comedy or was it oh yeah definitely like one you know one of my best friends in high school that was like it was like over carlin like we would just like drive out to the mall play video games and just like recite like you know the whole side of am fm and am or (laughs) that's so good uh did uh, did that did that help you i guess going once you ended up i mean when you went to, to to school did you go just as a writer or was there a specific concentration where you ended up being you you mean college you just went to college sorry yeah well, you know, I, I plan to major in neurochemistry at Clown College. So, <laughs> no, um, no, I, I actually didn't have any thought of, of comedy as a career or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, I was sort of more into politics and anthropology. I majored in anthropology and Russian studies, wow. which I highly recommend as a springboard into a, bet. the comic world. I bet. Um, I just did what I was interested in, which I, you know, I actually think, you know, along the way, I think that that's actually a good idea for someone pursuing the field is not to necessarily concentrate in for sure. writing or communications. I think you should learn that by doing it but i think you know pursue what you're interested in and that will sort of inform your your writing um you can hear the rest of my master class on the learning um right after the wine tasting for singles um seminar um anyway so so yeah so i didn't know what i was going to do i just picked out what i was interested in and I took all kinds of classes but what i found was that extracurricularly everything i was doing was sort of comedy related like i ended up gravitating towards the humor magazine and ended up being the editor and uh, I helped form an improv troupe and even, like, uh, worked for the student theater group, writing, helping to write the musical. And even the marching band was kind of a goofy, one of those goofy scramble bands. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, like, everything I did was comic. And, like, one summer I was applying to be an intern for Mad Magazine. Awesome. Um, and I did not get it. But, like, while I was putting together the application, I was like, oh, my God, I should just be doing this. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so I sort of like started thinking about that as a career, and then my friend's brother got a job on The Simpsons, and suddenly it occurred to me I was I was a late bloomer, but uh-huh. like oh I guess someone does create that stuff, and that's actually a job. Right. And so then I started to turn my brain around at that point. I think that's crazy. Did uh, did the the only reason I asked about college originally was uh, did it help you the fact that you've made friends through comedy did that help you in college at all? That you <laughs> had this kind of probably encyclopedic knowledge of some of this stuff. I, I don't think that I don't think I bonded with people in the same way. I think in college, I don't think I found any kind of like, you know, soulmates in the same way. But I think okay. it did sort of create the, the baseline for the fact that suddenly, like, I had comedy in my DNA, and that's what I found myself doing. Yeah. I think just having like absorbed all that stuff, like maybe he'd reprogrammed the wiring or something. Yeah. So that whole time, though, were you were you writing the whole time anyway? Was it just something you did, or did you just have to start writing? I always practice. wrote things. I wrote, used to write more sort of serious short stories and okay. that sort of thing. And I wrote it for the, like, the school newspaper. And I was always writing one thing or another. And, you know, some kind of little – I was writing like little – even in junior high, I was like sort of doing knockoff far side cartoons. And awesome. Passing them around when I should have been paying attention in class. Sure. And, um, you know, and I, w- I would always do sort of goofy things like that, but I never, I never took it seriously. So, I mean, I guess you could say that I was always doing something like that, but I never sort of put that together with what my quote-unquote job was going to be. Right. When was the first time you sort of felt that all coming together as something that was going to start being a career for you? When did it? Well, I think I think that that failed Mad Magazine application, which you know, yeah. anything that you do, that you fail at is really always sure. so inspiring. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Reach for the ceiling, I always say. <laughs> but uh, um, I think just the process of doing that and thinking like, what if? Like, I just felt like, what if this was my job to think of things like that? Mm-hmm. Like, because I was like, you know, you just like junior year of college, you're just starting to vaguely think about jobs or something like that. Yeah, like careers and like maybe it's just the summertime when you actually go back to your parents' house and you have to go work. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> or else they're going to kick you out. 
I was just in that mind frame. Um, and then, and then, you know, my friend getting that job in the Simpsons, then, then they told us about this idea about a spec script, about writing a sample episode of a TV show. Mm -hmm. And then he and I started working on that and, you know, did a really terrible, terrible Murphy Brown one. But, you know, just like, I think putting that together, like the idea of trading back and forth with someone, I think was like, you started to feel like, you know, it was a craft that, that I could, you know, I could aspire towards one day being not completely sucky at. Yeah. Did you ever, I, uh, just in personal experience, did you ever feel held back by having to learn the format or did you not care? I I just had to Well, in a way that's sort of, it's sort of an empowering thing because it's like, there's so little you have control over (laughs) when you're, when you're trying to like break into showbiz. Like there's so much that's arbitrary and that has to do with luck and people meeting the right people or all those stuff that you can't do anything about. Like the one thing you can control are margins. Yeah. So like, I know people who like really obsess over margins and they were like, early like fledgling internet groups devoted to like you know you know font sizes and like right. people would like take rulers and measure like you know how far down like a, a fraser script would begin act oh one God. at and it was just so like this funny. whole like i think i remember seeing sites like that when i was yeah. trying to learn it too um so what what then i mean i know you eventually launched off into the daily show but what was kind of what was the, all the in between well um it was, you know, it was a long process. Uh, I, I made my way out to Los Angeles, and I was working. Um, my first job was actually doing data entry for um, Steven Spielberg's Holocaust Foundation. So, really? again, another springboard. Oh that, yeah, yeah. Know, right. And I rationalize that to myself as well. I'll be on the Universal Studios lot, so you never right. know. Right. Hey, Steven, you know, while we're talking, um, it was we were in this trailer, and we were just like doing data entry from survivors. Oh shit. And it's, the trailer was located right next to where the tour goes. Mm-hmm. You know, the Universal Studios tour, and it yeah. happened to be like I think because it was Spielberg, it was right near the Raiders of the Lost Ark <sighs> thing. So like, there's a, there's a fully sound effect every day of like 400 times a day of like machine gun fire going off so like oh we're God. doing oh <laughs> recounting God. these two life tales of holy crap <laughs> just like the worst possible arranged wow so that lasted not very long but yeah. um i got a job as a as a production assistant on uh for a trailer house that was doing like disney home video okay. tv ads you know like they're all 15 second 30 second ads and mm-hmm. you know that was sort of like to me it still felt like that was someone in the industry but you know, but, but basically I did that because I could do it for like about 35 hours a week and make enough to pay the rent and also not be doing it all day long and sure. using up all my brain. So I really was using that time to like try to write feature scripts, right. screenplays and spec scripts, wrote a ton of those things. And then like the third sort of thing on the side was that the same buddy that I was writing that, that terrible Murphy Brown script with, <laughs> um, he had gotten a job as an assistant on Dennis Miller's HBO show, Dennis Miller Live. Mm-hmm. And um, he uh, he encouraged me to fax in uh, monologue jokes because you know, sometimes if they got stuck, they would look at a few things from outside okay. faxers. Yeah. Um, and um, I started doing that. I was really, really bad at it. And it was really hard for me, but I did it. And it was a good exercise. I did mm-hmm. it for a few years. And I never really got anything on the air, but uh-huh. I got some things that like Dennis liked and that got some good attention. Um, and then I moved on to a production job as an assistant at Unhappily Ever After, which was this really, yeah. really um, unfortunate sitcom <laughs> on the then WDB network. Uh-huh. It was sort of it was from the creators of Married with Children, but without the wit. Right, right. Um, it was the one with the Bobcat Goldthwait bunny puppet, yeah, and actually boy. a lot of great people are, are from it. Um, right. Kevin Connolly from Entourage and. Mm-hmm. Jeff Pearson was on Dexter and was on 24, mm-hmm. and um, Nikki Cox yeah. and uh, Bobcat, of course, right. a legend. Um, so a lot of great people were on that show. Uh, oh, and um, I can't think of the, 
Justin Burfield, who's the the older brother, I'm Malcolm in the oh, middle. Oh, okay, the, yeah, yeah. The Re- Reese, the bullying sort mm-hmm. of older brother we live with. Um, so a lot of really talented people. Um, the writers were totally nice on that, but it was kind of a crazy show, but a good showbiz environment. Um, my first day on the job, my first assignment was to go to a taxidermy shop to pick up a dead cat, a stuffed dead cat. Oh, my God. So it's like, welcome to showbiz. Holy shit. Yeah. Um, so that was good. But So I did that for the last season of the show. And in the meantime, I was faxing these jokes in. And I was trying to work on my own scripts and all that on this stuff. Um, and then uh, there was an opening for a writer's assistant on the Dennis Miller show when my friend got promo- promoted. And um, I'd had some production experience. And they saw that my jokes had some, you know, some potential. So they interviewed me for that job. So I got that job. So I was an assistant on um, Dennis Miller's show. And, you know, a writer's assistant is sometimes like kind of an apprentice job where you're sort of helping the writers, but they're kind of trying to see if you could possibly make it as a writer yourself. So I was turning a lot of jokes on top of being kind of the secretary, like anonymously. And I started to get them on the air. I didn't get any credit or, Mm -hmm. you know, or money for that. But, um, but I started to get better at pitching. And like when the room would come to a screeching halt, I started to, you know, grow some extra balls and mm-hmm. pitch things to Dennis Miller, which is, you know, Jesus. It, it, I don't even know how I did it now. Like yeah. I look back at it, but it's just cause I had to, I was so hungry to do it. Right. And I got better at it and he started to notice. And then when the last year of the show, when they were just about to get canceled, they got one last season and one of the senior writers left. And so he promoted me to writer and that was like, wow. Right under the wire. I got, I got that ready. And that this is after like five years of, you know, pounding the pavement. So yeah. Um, you know, so it wasn't like the screenplay or the sitcom job I'd sort of dreamed of when I moved out here, but right. it was like the other thing I was trying. And um, after that, I met someone on that show who was a former Onion guy uh-huh. who knew people at The Daily Show, and they had, they had a vacancy because someone had left, and he couldn't move to New York, but I could. Mm-hmm. So I applied for that. He introduced me to them. I did a lot of submissions for them, like sample Daily Show material, mm-hmm. and finally got that job. Um I thought I was just going to try it for six months because um, my wife is in the industry uh-huh. and she, um, uh, you know, her jobs were mostly in LA. So it was hard to like, we'd have to be by coastal. So oh, it was right. going to be hard to do that. Yeah. So I thought I'll try it for six months. This is like 2002. And like suddenly the show kind of gets the media's attention, right. I think. And that, that era starts winning Emmys and yeah. became a six year job. Jesus. So I was like, I can't leave the show. This <laughs> right. is like great for my career. Uh-huh. Um, so, you know, I'm really glad that it, it took things to a different path than I planned on because it was a good path. Yeah. And then and then I was sort of ready to move back to L.A. And um, I saw that Conan was moving back here. And I'd met some of the writers during the writers' strike when we were all kind of walking around in the snow in New York together. And mm-hmm. um, um, I sort of harangued, harassed Mike Sweeney, the head writer, mm-hmm. for a long period of time until they finally had one more shot at, like, a monologue position. Which, so ironically, the thing that I had been really struggled with years ago yeah was what um, I landed a job doing. So I got out here just in time, just in time to sort of pilot that show into the grave, you know, seven months after. I, <laughs> yeah. I'm the black widow of uh, the last year of the, unhappily ever after, the last year of Dennis Miller. Last year, you know. The Daily Show's still going strong. You're fine. Yeah, but that's because I left. Okay. <laughs> Had right, I there stayed. You go. <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah, I mean, that was going to be a question of mine was uh, what was it like, I guess, switching coasts like that, but it seems like it was best for you to... I guess to you, you knew you were going to come back at some point. I guess. Right? Yeah, that was the goal. I, I like the there's a lot of opportunities out here. I kind of like I like New York, but it's hard to live there. We had a, we yeah. had a kid, we had a baby. It's hard to raise a kid there. You know, it's right. expensive, and you know, Daily Show is a great, great experience, but it's kind of grinding in a way. Like just watching that much Fox News, right? When you when you don't have to, is I like, wondered about <laughs> that. Yeah, I think yeah. that would kill me. Like, I yeah, would, it would be so. Uh, what's how is it for you then switching from what seems like a very different type of humor? 
to that kind of, to, from the Daily Show to writing strictly monologue stuff. Um, it is different. Um, I miss sometimes. I miss getting to like really like you know you know sink your teeth into political stuff, which sure. I really care about. Very passionate about that. Sure. I miss that. I also it's also a relief not to have to kind of make that my problem that we can do you know Lindsay Lohan jokes. Yeah, you know. yeah. Finally, someone mm-hmm. someone gets to do Lindsay Lohan jokes. <laughs> but, you know, like we have – I would say like the Daily Show was all about depth. Like you pick a couple of things to really focus in on. And this mm-hmm. show is more about breadth. Yeah. So it's nice to kind of just switch that up and just like, you know, you can sort of take on anything you want. And just, you know, Conan is smart like the Daily Show but also just sort of sillier too. Of course, so right. You can unhinge that kind of right brain thing. Is there – out of curiosity, what's – I mean, I uh, from an observer standpoint, I can see what's changed. We'll get back to the album. I'm sorry, but uh, I'm just fascinated. Uh, what's changed for you as a writer going from The Tonight Show to this this show? Oh, um, I mean, besides not having employment suddenly and right, not having right, employment? Right, right, yeah. That's good. That's, that's... Um, I think it's been sort of, uh, you know, freeing in a way. I think The Tonight Show was – an interesting experiment, and I think it, maybe it wasn't the best fit for mm-hmm. what Conan does. Right. Um, and you know, it was very unfortunate and for everyone, um, of course. Um, so it was not a great experience, but um, it was kind of cool to see like the way that the fans responded. Like we had such an outpouring of love that I think we'd not Conan had not been aware of before that. Yeah, that was really a great thing. Um, and um, you know, so it felt a little straightjacketed. Like it was a little bit more conservative and. I think Conan sort of felt like he had to touch on all the political topics of the day okay. in a way that he doesn't really like to do because he likes to stay kind of apolitical. Right. Um, and I think here there's sort of a freedom to kind of just – you know, TBS, you know, really wanted Conan and they just let him do whatever he wants, yeah. which is great. Like I don't think they say anything – you know, it, as we learned from Bill Carter's book, like NBC was sort of trying all kinds of things to make Conan do. And, right. You know, you just right. – you don't make Conan do what, what's not Conan. Like, yeah, I can't He imagine. does what he does and that's and, – uh, and if you try to, if you try to straightjacket that, then – It'll just make it more crazy, right? Practically. I mean, that seems to be what what changed. I mean, like I I've talked about it before. Like I'm a huge fan of his and of of all the shows. As a kid, I completely did not get uh, late night when it first came on because I was just dumb. Right. And then and then eventually when I was like, holy shit, he's doing what I would do if I had a TV, <laughs> if I had a program to make things, you know. And I feel like that's kind of there's something very freeing about that. And then to come back to that now, and cable, I guess cable's the best place to do that, though. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, and uh, it, it would be nice. I, I hope they kind of. Well, I, I hope there are more late night shows that kind of pick up the. the and one tradition. thing that's funny is that, um, you know, there's a whole intellectual property issue because so like NBC owned all these things like in oh, the year God, 3000. Yeah. We managed to wrest Triumph away from them because mm-hmm. you know I don't know what they were going to do with Triumph except maybe have him solve SVU crimes or yeah, something right. like that. But, <laughs> um, but uh, but basically other than that, all those things belong to NBC. So like we kind of had to burn the whole shed down right. and just start over, which is kind of like scary, but like a very freeing thing in a way. I, like, I bet. Like that's the best thing to do. I think for a, you know, a variety show It's just like, you have to like reinvent, you know, the wheel. Yeah. Um, is there, um, shoot. So sorry. Give me a second. My brain was complete. My brain. No, the answer is no. Off. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. You solved the problem. Um, but, uh, I mean, as far as uh, what's the, pro- I, I don't want to, you know, just kill you with questions about writing for the show. But uh, the process of writing the monologue, is it simply, is it writer's room or is it your own? It's more individual, which, um, you know, Daily Show is more collaborative, which I liked, but I also just like sitting down and pounding it out myself. Mm -hmm. And then we meet up, we usually meet up to go over it and we also meet to pitch ideas for the the sketch part of the show Mm -hmm. as a group. Um, But those guys who do that are just so, 
their brains are just much better disposed for that than I, for what oh, okay. stuff will work like as a live sketch or a video. I mean, I've gotten some things on there that I've been proud of, but mm-hmm. monologue writers, I just, I just like to really like jokes. I yeah. just like to write yeah. them. And it's like a, a factory assembly line in the way, like coming in the morning. And mm-hmm. um, we have these college interns who are like the sort of like harvester bees who like come in and they like, they go through the mm-hmm. headlines and they find premises and stuff. Okay. And I like to find my own too as well. And I just go through all, you know, all kinds of news sources and, you know, just, just punch out a bunch of jokes and, you know, he hates most of them. And then you just, mm-hmm. you pick up and you start over again from that and you just kind of take that through the day. Yeah. So it's kind of, it's very like, you know, doing piecework or something like that in a way, but, right. but I really like it. I, I like to just like keep tapping into that part of my brain and just seeing what it comes up with next. I don't know if I can imagine the incredibly thick skin you have to have to have been doing this for this long. Well, I've also been married for 14 years. Okay. So like, you know. Well, there you go. That makes sense. Um, let's let's go back a little bit to uh, Free to Be You and Me and maybe other albums that you listened to uh, when you were younger. Is is there anything – we talked to a, a lot of people come on the show and they'll bring up albums that I might not relate to, like maybe an Adam Sandler album or something, which is a little too – just it wasn't – I was listening to Carlin too when I was like, you know, the age I should have been listening to Adam Sandler or whatever. Um, is there anything right, right. you look back on and you're like, oh shit, what was I thinking? Like listening to, like the, it only works for you as a 13 year old kid, maybe, you know, because I know I've got those, but. Yeah. Um, you know, the thing is, I think my parents just didn't really have that many of those albums around the, okay. around the house. Um, like they were not really, so, they, they're very funny people. They have great sense of humor. They weren't really into comedy. They had, they had sort of fairly cheesy musical taste. Like there was a lot of Neil Diamond and John Denver. Okay. So maybe yeah. that sort of like, that created the, the groundwater for my sense of irony or something mm-hmm. like that, or, or my sensibility or something like that. They were very much like of the 70s, but I didn't, I didn't feel like I had a lot of comedy influences and I kind of had to go out and find that stuff myself. Yeah. I, I always wonder about that too. Is is some people will talk about uh, comedy being something that you're born with. Some people will talk about something that you kind of learn and pick up or teach yourself. And I, I personally believe you can teach it to yourself. But uh, I'm just I wonder what your perspective. Well, is I think on it's that. definitely both. I think there's something yeah. like definitely like a sense, like I was saying, the Matrix thing, where like where you yeah. see funny things everywhere. Of course, yeah. But then like you have to really refine that, and then like how do you translate that into writing and right. all the different formats of writing that come up on tv or radio on the stage like there's all that the craft of like translating it to other people what you see is funny Mm -hmm. or some version of that that's the part that you have to learn but i think you have to have some kind of kernel of that sure and it's funny like i um a friend of mine who i'm still in touch with i went to summer camp with was like he says oh you were always the funny guy i was like i was like when i was 11 like i don't really i mean i I imagine i always laugh but i don't remember like being the funny guy yeah you didn't identify that way yes i mean it wasn't like part of my a strong part of my identity or something maybe it just felt natural or something like that Mm-hmm. Uh, although we did, he and I did put on for the talent show at camp. We did stage Monty Python's Argument Clinic. Awesome! Which awesome. was which was great. Oh, that's uh, good. Um, we we staged that. It was a mostly Jewish camp, and we got howls. And then I was so emboldened by that that I went back to my Presbyterian conservative Southern prep school mm-hmm. and did try to do it at the talent show and, and did it entirely to crickets. <laughs> Shit. Why don't these people just agree? <laughs> right, right. Oh <laughs> Why not reach God. some kind of sensible reconciliation? <laughs> Holy cow! That's well. That's that's those are the balls that you were talking about earlier. Well, I didn't know. I mean, if to... I'd known that, I might have. Tried yeah, it. maybe. But I mean, I, I feel like at least at least knowing that it can work. Early out. rejection is good for the soul, I guess. For right? sure. Yeah. Does does it help you? You know, considering yourself more of a joke writer, or at least enjoying being a joke writer more. Did that help you writing this album? If only because you're not dealing with the visual, you're dealing with you know you're dealing strictly with words yeah i do like to deal with words more i feel more like you know um i'm already teaching my daughter like puns and wordplay and stuff like uh-huh. that and um 
So anything where you can play around with the words, especially when like there's a sort of Sudoku puzzle of writing song lyrics where they yeah. have to rhyme and scan and you know change it up sometimes. And I haven't really got to do very much of that. Like you know, monologue jokes have a certain you know poetry or rhythm to them. I think. Mm-hmm. And you know, John Stewart's and Dennis Miller's and Conan's are all different. So I had sure. to learn those different kinds of feeling. But they also have a kind of very set feeling. And then song lyrics are kind of just a different way to do that. I think, um, which is just sort of like kind of you know, joyous in a way. And especially when you have someone like Joel who can just like create the music that like, you know, amps that up. Like yeah. it just, it just like takes the jokes and everything. It just takes it to this whole like electrifying level. So that's, been, that's been really cool. Um, it was also kind of fun to do a little bit more long form stuff like that. Right. Like to take an comic idea, like, you know, like on the album, like, like taking a really happy, upbeat thing about divorce, mm-hmm. you know, like, you know, and just, and like having spelling out a whole like little scenario, you know, like that, or, um, or Joel, we were just kicking around ideas for songs, just song titles. And Joel came up with, he just wrote a bunch of song titles and he wrote friends of friends. And I just immediately, mm-hmm. I was thinking of that song from free to be you and me about glad to have a friend like you, and yes. you, know, you know, Joe helps Jane and they bake mm-hmm. a pie and that sort of thing. I just immediately had this vision of a song about like all these people who only vaguely knew each other. <laughs> <laughs> couldn't remember each other's name and so good. but just so happy and upbeat like yeah. so it was just nice to have like i guess the difference is with songs you get a tone yeah yeah and you know usually when you write for someone like a host like the host sort of is the tone like right their voice is the tone and it's their thing but in this case you get to kind of you know create your own or sure. you know we sort of camped under free be you and me's which was fun because it's right. a very happy upbeat tone. Yeah. yeah and then make it kind of darker was was a different experiment this is yeah. like a, this is like an you know i think probably like an eight or nine year old, 10 year old sure. kind of thing. Cause it's For like sure. sort of when you're just, you've been gendered to gendered to gendered to death. And this is like right. suddenly like, right. Hey, genders are not what you think they are. And that yeah. sort of thing. Um, I think my parents were pretty like progressive and open-minded. And my mom was like, you know, going to law school when I was old enough to observe that. And my mm-hmm. dad helped make dinner and stuff like that. So I think they were pretty like, you know, progressive in terms of egalitarianism. But mm-hmm. um, at the same time, I think it helps me, um, um, not kind of buy into all that kind of male macho stuff. I mean, yeah. I was already terrible at sports anyway. And, right, right. And, uh, you know, I didn't really, I guess I didn't think it was okay to cry. Mm-hmm. It turns out it was. Yep. You know. Yep. Um, and, you know, I didn't go so far as having a doll, but, you know. Um, I mean, I just it was just nice to sort of be exposed to that. Because like, yeah. I, th- I think I've always had like a kind of like, you know, um, I wouldn't say feminine side, but just sort of like an open side where yeah. I'm not particularly like in the masculine mold. I don't really like you know, sports or like tough guy stuff, that sort of thing. I've never been comfortable in that realm. So yeah. it was nice to feel that you could have other options. How does that help you as a writer? Um, well, I think it's, I think it's good because like as a writer, you, you have to be able to adopt all the different kinds of points of view. So like sure. anything you're locked into is going to sort of restrict, I mean, you know, that can be good if it helps you like really have a point of view kind of, you know, show or, mm-hmm. or, you know, thing like that. But I think also like, especially as a joke writer, when we're writing a broad variety of topics, like yeah. you kind of want to be able to like, plug into different kinds of different kinds of feelings that are not necessarily your own so, sure you know yeah and i mean it it uh it enables you i guess to to pick apart uh those things that you maybe don't relate to as much as just as much as you might be able to pick your, yourself apart yeah you look at things more as like an outside observer i think always helps yeah do you at all and some people do some people don't when i interview them do you miss having albums that you can physically touch or does it matter to you at all yeah, I, I really liked that as a kid. Yeah. I liked I liked all the clunky apparatus of it. I liked that like this horrible. I mean, record players are just like the most like, 
like inefficient, like For ungainly, sure. like dropping the needle thing down on uh-huh. there. Like where is it supposed to land? Yeah. It could damage the record. <laughs> it could damage the needle. It probably will. Right. Usually the hinge is broken. Mm-hmm. You know, our, on ours, even worse was ours was in this like dusty cabinets and you had to like roll it out on a drawer yeah. like that, which was like creaky and like everything was covered in dust. And it was kind of like, it was just this very strange, like kind of like throwback thing. Like, it yeah. felt almost Amish, like, you know, operating a record. <laughs> Um, and I kind of missed that in a way as well. Like, cause you know, cause at the same time it was a challenge. Like if you really like knew where your track was, which mm-hmm. groove was yours and you got right, it. Right. Right. Like, yes. Yes. <laughs> I did the unnecessarily difficult thing. <laughs> um, and yeah, like, and like feeling those records and like sliding them into the huge, like, you know, sleeves mm-hmm. and even like the liner notes, like those huge copious liner yeah. notes. That was like a fun thing too. And, um, you know, like a CD, you can't really hold a jewel case in your hands in the same way. I mean, right. you can, but it's smaller and it's yeah. kind of, it feels like something you're supposed to put on a shelf. And, yeah. Um, and like the way, like, you know, these things are made of cardboard, like the sleeves. So like mm-hmm. they always got rubbed off on the edges. Right. So like this is very like kind of homey feel to it that For I sure. definitely miss. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, and also, of course, my parents have them all lined up vertically. So like uh-huh. you, you can't really see the lettering to see which one is which. You get a couple of wrong guesses each time. Uh-huh. You know? So there's all these things that are just so... That's great. I, I um I mean that that's the other thing is like I I'm, I'm very bad at buying anything digitally, but I literally the bonus to technology is I bought this thing on the way out of my house, mm-hmm. you know, on my phone and got to listen to it on the way here, listen right. to, the, to it uh, one and a half times, right. you know, getting here. Um, the, halfway through, you were in a, a horrible car crash, <laughs> right? Yeah, it's so I'm gonna have some like, bad associations with this. Yeah, album. I know. <laughs> I apologize. So my my recommendation at the end is going to be a no. No, I'm kidding. Right. But uh, it was um yeah. So uh, that's yeah. It still kind of weirds me out that I'm just only gonna have this on my phone. It's only digital. That's it, what's weird about it for us too. Um, and like a lot of people, I've like said, do you want to you want to uh, review it? And they're mm-hmm. like, yeah, just send it. This I was like, well, I can't really send it. Mm-hmm. Um, and and we actually we actually pressed a few of them because there were some, a couple of holdouts who demanded to have it in CD form. Okay, but it was like really nice to hold that CD in my hands. I bet. Yeah, it was I just bet. nice to see it. Like you know, even that that whole album cover that this great artist Andrew Lynn designed as an homage to the Free to Be and You. He even made it look scratchy. If you look at the album oh, cover on the awesome. iTunes site, like it looks scratchy and rubbed out. Oh, it's so good. Um, so just to hold that like in your hands, it's just like it feels more like you did something versus like, you know, digital thing could be like an email. Yeah. <laughs> you know. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask because, uh, you know, a lot of work, especially in comedy TV, is pretty ethereal. I yeah. Feel like, you know, yeah. especially daily yes. comedy work. Right. <laughs> that's, that's just right. gone. You know right. you did it and you've got the credit and you probably, may, you probably got a copy of what you wrote somewhere, but – is that is that freeing in a way though because you get to move past what you've already written and just develop it helps with the rejection thing too. you know there's 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 a plus and a minus to doing like a daily show the plus is that if you don't do well one day then you know you don't get any jokes on or you have just a dry spell or mm-hmm. one day or a week or two years or a decade of not getting nothing on the air you know you can always start again the next day you can start fresh you sure. know, the stakes attached to each show are less so than um but then the downside of that is, of course, yes, it's more fleeting. The topic matter, you know, people won't get the jokes sometimes. And when I go back and look at my old jokes from the shows, I'm like, well, who will even remember that, like, you mm-hmm. know, more? Um, but, you know, so, so, so then sometimes you feel like you want to create something a little bit more lasting. I think this was, this album was an attempt to do that. Like, yeah. I mean, mostly by, like, being like a lamprey that attached ourselves to the side of a much greater work, mm-hmm. you know, that people <laughs> was an actual enduring work. But, you know, like, we tried very hard not to really work any pop culture or specific Current references, right? Yeah, I noticed that. You know, which is which is a you know a very 
temptation is there all the time to just sure. make things about uh, free to be Lindsay Lohan, you know. Mm-hmm, right. Um, um, and I, I don't like to do that because I think when you want to create something, you want to be able to listen to it in five or ten. You know, it's just like all the stuff I listen to. Like, you know, even George Carlin's stuff, which was, you know, some of his, like, radio riffs were kind of of their time. Like, sure. you could still sort of get the feeling of, like, yeah. what he was playing off of and, you know, the, the spirit of the times and that sort of And I think that's fine. Yeah. Um, and I've also, like, you know, I've also, to plug myself a little harder, mm-hmm. uh, I've also written some uh, books as well for that reason, too, is to have something more tangible that can sort of stick around. Yeah, let's uh, let's talk about those so that we. Don't oh play. well, if you insist, Jason. <laughs> oh, well, I couldn't. I certainly mustn't. But, um, well, I'm I'm a bit of an apocalypse nerd, so I have mm-hmm. a, I have a print book called Apocalypse How, which is the first feel good guide to the apocalypse. So awesome. wow, it's going to be the best for thing for everyone, and I guess people are interested in that right now for some reason. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm hoping to sell a lot before December 21st. Nice. Um, um, I think the Mayans should do a one a day, one apocalypse a day calendar. I think <laughs> it would sell much better than their current it's one. True, it's not true. selling much at all. Maybe a hunky fireman calendar that would be good. <laughs> anyway, so and then I have an ebook which is also goes back to the digital thing, um, mm-hmm. which is a bunch of satirical vignettes about thirty five different views of what the future could be. Um, awesome, and that was fun for me as well too because also like not tied into like the current you know pop culture or or news cycle. Yeah. Um, and but then it also makes me wonder like if the apocalypse happened, which believe me I, I do hope it happens. But, sure. But all the stuff I've done will will be like on digital media, mm-hmm. and if we don't have electricity or or, or petrol <laughs> that we have to fight master blaster to get, then um, then no one will have any idea that I ever made anything. <laughs> what is your skill? I mean that's just so. I mean that it helps though. I mean for that specific reason to be non-specific it makes it a little more socially relevant i feel like you know for satire especially to, to yeah. do an album like this or do a book that's you know a, a guide to, to the apocalypse is that's is there is there any specific satirists that that inspire you or do you just is it just you, do you, do you i think it's just a pastiche of everything I, I don't know if i can point to any particular mm-hmm. uh you know influence in this case um I mean, I think I got some of the, the the feeling for the Apocalypse book from, you know, working the Daily Show, where like the, the sort of predominant mode is to take dreary things and turn them on their head and make yeah. them sort of ironically wonderful. Of I course, think that's yeah. probably the voice that I was operating from, mm-hmm. um, but to not apply, not applying it to like you know the Daily News, but just like the worst possible thing you can imagine, um, and also the kind of like you know motivational speaker, uh, you know trend we have of like everything in american you know everything can be made great you can turn everything right. into a plus um and then i think with the futures book it was more like i think with that i was sort of looking i was inspired by the kind of like philip k dick ray bradbury mm-hmm. school of like looking at sort of things that are currently around now and like where they could lead to in the future and like yeah how the stuff that we're still wrestling with nowadays how that could still continue but in a different guise in the future but you know i just look at things a little bit more comedically sure i think than they do do you have a specific outlet for your uh, political satire, or is it that just a... Mostly Twitter, I would say, is yeah. the best place for that right now. I mean, I've done a couple of videos that are kind of like satirical PSAs. Like, I did one for the healthcare debate, and I did one about the, the Citizens Citizens United decision and stuff like that. And mm-hmm. so that's enabled, me, and, um, that's enabled me to kind of, like, keep those kind of chops up and do it just on my own time. Yeah. Um, but, you know, Twitter's good for that because, like, you know, Conan wants to, like reach as broad an audience as possible and, you know, not be too political in one way or another. Although sure. he's a little political, but not that political. And mm-hmm. this is, I can kind of like really let loose on Twitter and, you know, kind of get a <laughs> preach to the choir of people who already agree with me anyway. Right. Right. Um, 
What we normally do on on the uh, on the podcast about this time is we ask people to say, well, why would you listen? Why should you listen to this album? Uh, so uh, tell people why they should listen to your album, but also tell them why they ought to listen to Free to Be You and Me if, if you want to recommend it to people. Well, I turn that around and say, Jason, why shouldn't you listen That's to this album? That's a very good question. Um, <laughs> all right. Well, two, there are two different answers. First of all, I would say you have to listen to Free to Be You and Me because I think it like speaks to a whole generation some of it seems like really obvious now, like this sort of idea that, you know, women could be airline pilots. Right, right. Like, what? <laughs> a witch, a witch. Um, that sort of stuff was, but that was pretty groundbreaking, like, you know, for, for Marlo Thomas and and, and her, her brood at that time, mm-hmm. uh, just to sort of like open up the possibilities and also like gender possibilities that men don't have to be quote unquote manly and women don't have to be quote unquote womanly and women and men can be like legitimate friends. Yeah. You know, that sort of thing. I think that's really important. Um, and I also think it's sort of important because some of it is still regressed in a way. Um, like I had this four-year-old daughter and we haven't like consciously introduced her to girly things in any kind of fashion. Yeah. We've tried to steer away from that. But like the culture is such there that she's coming home wanting to buy princesses yeah, and yeah. dress up in girly things. And, you know, it's fine for her to do that. But sure. like the Disney – I call it the um, – the uh, Disney Princess Industrial Complex because it's just like so like hammered into them. Yeah, I think there is a sort of relevance, and also like you know, boys have the superheroes and all that stuff. Like I think there's sure. um, that stuff is still there, and I think that it's and I think the album really holds up mostly, you know, in, mm-hmm. in that way. I don't think it's particularly dated, um, and, and also as I said, it's just really wonderfully entertaining. Like, it's yeah. just funny and it has like some of the most amazing talent across every genre of the seventies: musical, comedic. Literary has you know Shel Silverstein poems which yeah. are amazing and um, and it's just really sharp edged and it's just really great it's just very entertaining and you and your kids will will love it um, now our album uh, is is even better than that in every possible way no I mean I th- I think our album is just like I would like I would dare to humbly say like it's a kind of just it's just kind of a lighter companion to that because mm-hmm. it just sort of takes um, the very earnest and well-meaning vibe of that. And it just sort of like goes into a few darker corners, I think, than they did. And, you know, there's a couple of places where we just riff off of something in that album just for fun, like the, the very famous Boy Meets Girl sketch mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, with uh, with Mel Brooks and, and, and Marlo Thomas. You know, we do a bunch of riffs on that with yeah. robots and <laughs> transgendered boys and girls, which is just for fun. Um, and then, and then you, know, our, you know, our songs that, that Joel wrote are just like a lot of fun. And... Um, as I said, like take that kind of satirical, um, making the dark into something light mm-hmm. thing as well. So I think it's just like a fun kind of reflection. I think it would be more fun if you listen to Free to Being You first. Yeah. I think you might sort of like get it and then you sort of get the album. But I think the album is also just sort of, you know, you should not have to understand it to get the right. jokes either. Definitely. Um, why don't you plug away? What, what kind of, uh, where can people find you? And what find else? the album. <clears throat> find the album, and where can they find you on Twitter and all? Oh, okay. So the album you can get on iTunes. Um, this week it's at the top of the New and Noteworthy, which is very nice awesome. in I, in iTunes comedy. Um, and we did it without even having a topless picture of Tig Notera, which I was, <laughs> you know, I fought for that, but even though I lost, um, my next album for sure. Sure. Um, no, so. Uh, so uh, you can find it on iTunes. Amazon has it as well. Um, I want to mention it's it's only four bucks, and all the proceeds are going to St. Jude's Children's Research Hospital, which was Marla Thomas is a big proponent of that, That's awesome. a big beneficiary. So we did it, we did it for love, you know, not not for money. Um, so 
you know, I think for four dollars, it's a great it's a great deal, and it's certainly you know for a good cause. And you know, even if it doesn't, even if it twists children's minds, at least it will help children's actual health in some fashion. Um, and also rooftop comedy, which is our record label, they, you can buy it there as well. And you can also listen to some samples as well for free on that site, um, uh, including a song by uh, Bare Naked Ladies, the former Bare Naked Ladies frontman Stephen Page called be yourself unless you're an asshole um <laughs> but so check that out any of those places um you can follow me on twitter at apocalypse how that's the name, also the name of my book um if you go to at apocalypse how one word um it has in my my whorish bio window it has information on how to buy how to look at the actual book the website for the book and for my my ebook about the future as well so kind of all the information is there or you can go to robcutner.com um i couldn't get robcutner.gov for some reason but, <laughs> That's odd. but dot, dot com will, will do the trick and i think i think if you um uh i think if you look at any of those places you'll find more than enough cutner to satisfy you on a dark and cold night <laughs> well this has been awesome thank you so much for doing this thank you uh, everybody thank you for listening obviously you rate us highly do all that good stuff and uh thanks for listening and have a good thing Mommies and daddies make mistakes And sometimes those are you But it's okay To say good day And start with someone new Cause divorce makes a family grow Instead of just one house There's two places to go The yelling stuff The present feather And divorce turns your parents into friends You get to eat what you want And sleep in late Hope daddy buy you all And mommy tart up for a date did you just say tart up? I'm just saying you're 34. At least I'm dating someone my own age. Unlike your yoga whore. She happens to be a licensed instructor. Yeah, I bet you she's mastered facing downward up all hey, your jokes. Hey, Boys, it's, it's just, just a fun new path. path. It's like, like a wedding backwards, so everyone should laugh. Have you ever actually tried talking to Moonflower? I'm sorry, I'm too busy raising the kids, which is more than I can say for you. Oh, oh, you finally found something you can't say. Well, someone alert the Vatican, there's been a miracle. Divorce makes the family grow. I wish you were dead. Comedy on Vinyl is a production of Stolen Dress Entertainment. It is produced by Mike Warden and is hosted and edited by Jason Klom. Visit StolenDress.com to listen to our other podcasts, read our blogs, read our tweets, watch our videos, and read our books. Please subscribe on iTunes, rate us highly, and write your reviews. You can follow us on Facebook.com slash Comedy on Vinyl and Twitter at Comedy on Vinyl.